My name is Isabel Trick, and I'm an Associate Director in the Global Macro Team at Global Council. Welcome to our podcast series, The Global Month Ahead. Towards the beginning of each month, I get together with colleagues from across GC to delve deeper into three of the most interesting events and developments taking place in the month ahead. You can usually expect a focus on issues with broader geopolitical or economic importance, and we will make sure that you know more than your friends and your colleagues when these topics will inevitably hit the news. For January's edition, we are going to focus on Davos, Taiwan's presidential election, and Italy taking over the presidency of the G7. Every year in the middle of January, media headlines bring us to the small Swiss town of Davos. Hundreds of global political and business leaders gather there for the annual meeting of the World Economic Forum, or WEF. The official agenda is usually packed with open panels and closed-door sessions and some live stream discussions of the most pressing issues on the global agenda. This time around, Davos kicks off on January the 15th under the theme of Rebuilding the Trust, and over 50 political leaders are already expected to attend. So to talk about Davos, I have Alexander Smotrov with me. He is GC's Practice Director for Europe and Eurasia, and he is a Davos regular. Hi, Alexander. Hi, Isabel. All right. So as someone who has gone to Davos so many times, can you actually give us a bit of a glimpse behind the curtain? What do people at Davos actually do? Right. This is a very good question because obviously Davos is synonymous with the World Economic Forum, but uh, WEF is only part of the bigger picture of what's happening on these days in the Swiss Alps. So... The World Economic Forum and its main event is obviously the centerpiece of Davos Week. So this is a high-profile conference with all these uh, events which you just mentioned. And programming for this takes literally a year to put together. All the politicians, business leaders, NGOs and others get together for meaningful conversations about uh, the global agenda. But what is happening outside the World Economic Forum Congress Center is no less interesting. And this so-called fringe at Davos grows year on year. And if you go to Davos, you will see about 40,000 people there every year and only 10% of them actually come for the conference. The rest of them are there for very high quality networking and Davos has become a proper and probably the most famous global networking event of the year and lots of discussions and conversations happen actually in the evening events, nightcap cocktails, all the media and other events which are happening on the fringes uh, of Davos. So you can get there for four days and have your global travel sorted and actually meeting lots of people in one place at the same time saves you a lot of effort and money. And this is why people value or value this a lot. As one of the delegates once put it, Davos is too convenient to skip and too important to miss. That's a very nice summary of that. And I also think the distinction that you've made is quite important. The WEF itself as the centerpiece, but also the fringes and the promenade where so many of the people who maybe didn't get an invitation to the top table are still there and have this incredible opportunity to network and to speak to people. And I guess the question is, what are they going to be speaking about? We touched on the the theme of the of the event this year round, but what do you think is really going to dominate the discussions in, in Davos? 
So this year, the main program, the official program is built around four main pillars. So first and foremost, obviously, it's geopolitics, and it's officially called Achieving Security and Cooperation in a Fractured World. So it's kind of continuation uh, of the previous uh, year's theme, so cooperation in the fragmented world. And they will obviously be talking about the current conflicts uh, in Ukraine, in the Middle East, uh, in other parts of the world. Uh, we have many new hotspots uh, coming up, but also about how we can overcome uh, this fragmentation. And using all these buzzwords uh, from various other events like co-petition, so cooperation and competition in one place, all these possible scenarios for another pandemic, for example, under the hashtag of disease X or X, all these uh, other interesting topics about, for example, the role of the developing world, BRICS, expansion, and so on. And what is interesting on this geopolitical strand, so we will see proper um, delegation from China this year after four-year hiatus because of COVID. And last year, the pandemic restrictions were lifted in China in January, but it was too late for them to scramble high-profile and representative delegation. But this year, the list of delegates is packed with Chinese uh, companies, institutions, uh, and uh, officials, and there will be more. And the official list of delegates will be uh, packed with uh, more uh, Chinese representatives, I'm sure. So the second pillar is uh, more economic, creating growth and jobs for a new year. And then people will be obviously talking about high interest rates, so-called gender dividend, all sorts of inequality issues and new sources of growth for the economy, including, again, the uh, Chinese economy, which is crucial for, for the rest of the world and many others. If we go to the third pillar, it's AI, also another buzzword this year, and looking at this as a driving force for the economy and society with all sorts of delegates from the industry, but also policymakers discussing how they can tame AI and use it uh, for the good, not uh, for the bad of the future. And finally, again, a perennial topic for Davos because it's obviously not going anywhere, a long-term strategy for climate, nature, and energy. And again, with all these recent outcomes of COP28 and more longer-term solutions for the global future. That sounds like an interesting uh, agenda for sure, um, geopolitical aspect. I don't think you can host a, a conference like Davos without talking about Ukraine, Russia, the Middle East. But of course, the economic topics, I think, will always dominate at Davos as well. And it's probably going to be absolutely defining to have the Chinese delegations back in force this year after four years with without China being represented at such a high level. And maybe this already touched on something that I'm curious to ask you about as well, because one of the advantages of being a Davos regular is that you would have seen how Davos has developed over the years. Would you say that Davos has changed or is this still the, the same old conference it was 10 years ago or longer ago? No, it's definitely evolving and developing to be um, relevant to the modern world, to the modern uh, societies, and also to bridge this gap between, you know, the policymakers, the uh, big businesses, but actually on the other side, there are communities and citizens of the world. These leaders are supposed to serve, but uh, there is not always an opportunity for them to listen to, uh, to this um, uh, representative. So that's why Davos has drifted in the last uh, few years towards 
more diverse representation of um, people in general. So in terms of their seniority, in terms of their geography, they are very much pushing for uh, more geographical representation because it was previously dominated by the U.S. businesses and European politicians. So now it's much more diverse uh, to include representatives from Asia, Africa, uh, international organizations, NGOs, and so on and so forth. Also, we mentioned this fringe, uh, which is growing year on year uh, with more corporate and other representation on the actual promenade with various national pavilions, uh, corporate panels, and other events. So becoming much more open and welcoming uh, to the participants outside the, the actual core WEF conference. But more importantly, it also includes more grassroots members uh, of the public. So I'm not talking about activists, so it's very difficult to get there, actually. But some of them uh, still managed to make their way uh, to So And we had Greta Thunberg speaking at uh, WEF in 2019, but then she came several times after that, but more as a kind of a participant of the fringe rather than the main conference, but also uh, media representatives are there, not only from the traditional uh, mainstream media, but also from the new media and also from the online platforms. So we will see more YouTubers, TikTok creators this year uh, with them uh, to be able to give their own take on the issues which are discussed there and basically uh, engage their audiences in this global agenda. It's really interesting to hear that it is not just a broadening in geographic scope in terms of diversifying the attendance, but also the, the kind of delegate who attends, because I guess for a long time we had that cliche of Davos man. And it clearly looks quite quite different now if we have people like Greta Thunberg uh, attending, as well as TikTokers and other young people and activists. So uh, fascinating to see how, how that has developed. And maybe just as a final question... You, we mentioned that this is a, a key networking opportunity, but there are so many conferences, I guess, to, to choose from in places like the IMF and World Bank meetings, for instance, are becoming more like networking opportunities as well. What do you think really sets Davos apart and why is it still relevant or is it still relevant? <sighs> They try to be relevant and also WEF is trying to shift people's attention from focusing just on one event a year. Obviously, Davos is a culmination of the WEF work throughout the year. But during the rest of the year, uh, they also um, try to organize very specific, very targeted panels, conferences, roundtables to create some kind of working groups and task forces to do a lot Lots of uh, thought leadership and stakeholder engagement uh, and publish interesting content, uh, both online uh, and on social media and elsewhere. So they, they, uh, they do a lot of things to remain uh, relevant and also to keep this brand because it uh, has been always the biggest non-affiliated conference compared to others, which are either organized by governments or um, international uh, organizations uh, or big brands. But also Davos used to be a place where a lot of uh, political deals and uh, some informal conversations taking place, for example, presenting the new political leaders or um, striking deals uh, or some kind of peace agreements between Middle Eastern powers uh, and uh, a few other conflicting sides. So Davos has lost a little bit this in the last few years, but maybe they still have a chance to uh, be an independent platform to make this kind of conflicting parties to meet and uh, discuss their differences and uh, get support from the rest of the world in uh, resolving these differences. 
Absolutely. And I guess this is not unique to, to Davos that some of these things are more challenging. The more fragmented the world is, we've seen the G20 struggle to kind of live up to, to that sort of convening power that it once had. But clearly, I always think back to one of you, uh, my favorite quotes from you that you brought back from Davos last year, which was, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu, which I think is still the reputation that Davos very much has. So um, we're going to be there this year. And um, if you are there too, um, get in touch with us at GC. Thanks very much, Alexander. Thank you. Presidential elections are taking place on January the 13th in Taiwan. That is, of course, important for the people of Taiwan. But given Taiwan's role in global geopolitics, this is also an election with the potential to have repercussions far beyond the borders of Taiwan. To talk about this election, I have Jayu Lee with me, a senior associate in our Singapore office. Hi, Jayu. Hi, Isabel. So nice to be here with you. Well, let's jump right in. For people who are not familiar with the political landscape in Taiwan, could you give us a bit of an introduction? Who are the main candidates and parties? Who are the frontrunners in this election? Sure. The general election is going to be a three-way race. So we're going to have uh, the ruling Democratic Progressive Party, who has nominated the Vice President Lai Qingte, uh, also known as William Lai. Uh, William Lai used to be a legislator, a mayor, and he has also held uh, multiple top positions in the government. He will be running a race together with the former Taiwan representative to the U.S., Xiao Biking. So the alliance is appealing to pro-independence voters and has actually been called by Beijing as diehard separatist. We also have the main opposition party, uh, Kuomintang, uh, KMT, or also known as the Nationalist Party. So they used to be the sole ruling party for Taiwan before the full democratization. Uh, this right-wing party, they have actually nominated Ho Yu Yi. He is uh, the city mayor of New Taipei City, and he was a former policeman. Um, the KMT is most appealing to mainland immigrants as well as uh, their descendants. And we also have another party, the Taiwan People's Party, TPP. This is a very new party, and it's centered around its candidate, uh, Carl Winger. He's a former surgeon and has served as a city mayor for the Taipei city. Um, they kind of position themselves as uh, the third choice between the Nationalist Party and uh, the DPP, the ruling party. Um, so they tend to focus a little bit more on domestic issues, such as housing, and they are most appealing to the younger generation. Um, as you can see here, uh, the Lai Qingde from the ruling party is the most experienced in terms of governing the country as well as you know, dealing with foreign relations. So he's actually currently leading the opinion polls. Uh, however, in recent weeks, we do see a hole from the KMT main opposition party slowly, slowly uh, closing the gap. So we're clearly looking at a three-person um, election here, especially with the introduction of a new party, the Taiwan's People Party. But it currently looks like William Lai, the vice president of the ruling party, is the leading candidate. Though we shouldn't rule out that the KMT, the main opposition party, might have a late surge in the polls. But you've already touched on some of the issues that um, have dominated the election. But let's dig a little bit deeper here. What issues have dominated the campaign in the last few months? For our listeners, the most relevant theme for this election would be cross-strait relations and the candidate stands on trade and investment. So if you look at 
uh, all these three candidates, they actually do share some similarities, especially um, if you look at um, cross-strait relations. Actually, three candidates, they all agree on maintaining the status quo in Taiwan. Um, there's a subtle difference um, between the candidates. For example, the ruling party um, is a little bit more pro-independence. And in terms of trade, um, they do think it is necessary to diversify um, their investment uh, trade away from China uh, for economic security. The main opposition, KMT, they agreed to the 1992 uh, One China Consensus. They blame the ruling uh, DPP for escalating this tension with China. And then they actually want to revive our cross-trade service trade agreement. So actually more trade, more engagement with Beijing. The TPP, the other opposition party, they kind of place itself somewhere in between the two parties. Um, so they are capitalizing on young voters who are very frustrated with um, the endless fighting between the both sides. So the TPP, they adopt a strategically ambiguous position. They say whether it's reunification or independence is actually um, quite impossible in the near term. But they are kind of uh, interested in having more economic collaboration with Beijing, uh, kind of reviving this uh, service trade agreement with Beijing as well. It's fascinating that we often think about how clearly the issue of relations with China would be the most divisive issue, and it clearly is the dominant issue. But there is actually more uh, agreement between these three parties than I expected, with all three of them broadly favoring the status quo. But of course, important um, differences on trade preferences. Where should we um, kind of put the effort in? Should we diversify away from China? Or should there be kind of increase in trade with China, especially on services trade? Well, we've already touched on who's leading in the polls. But I I guess especially adding in a new third party and a new challenger makes this slightly more um, unpredictable. Do we have a clear sense of who is actually going to win this? Do we have a clear uh, clear sense of the, uh, the outcome once uh, election day comes? It is very hard to predict the outcome at this point. Initially, the election looked like the ruling parties to lose after two terms in office because a third term would be actually quite unprecedented in Taiwan's democracy. And then a month ago, when the opposition planned to team up to defeat the ruling party, it seems like uh, the DPP is definitely going to lose. However, the opposition clearly couldn't agree on um, you know, the interpretation of opinion polls, which will decide who will be the president. And perhaps more importantly, there's a lack of common vision for Taiwan between the two opposition parties. And after all, uh, TPP's co-winger, um, he has in the past famously listed the Nationalist Party, KMT, together with cockroaches and mosquitoes as the three things he hated the most in life. The unsurprising eventual collapse in the opposition alliance last month actually boosted uh, DPP's chance of winning. Uh, but if you look at the opinion polls now, I think Lai stands at 35%, with KMT's whole closing the gap at 31%. Um, the ultimate result is really hard to tell, and it depends on the swing voters. Oh, absolutely. Um, if we're looking at 35 versus 31 percent, I don't think this is uh, in the bag for the ruling parties, especially if the third term would be uh, unprecedented in Taiwan. So I guess we have to wait and see until election day. But I do briefly want to zoom out from um, Taiwan itself and look at the wider implications, the geopolitical piece of this. 
depending on what happens on election day, what do you think could be some of the potential wider implications of this for Taiwan's relationship with China, but also Taiwan's relationship with the world? I think there are two parts to the answer. In the short term, uh, the good news is um, the chance of a military conflict is very low um, because in the U.S., the Biden administration, they really want to avoid uh, further disruption in global supply chain that will actually hike the energy prices. And in Beijing, um, the next year, 2024, will be a very crucial year for Beijing to manage its the, and also resolve the risk in its own financial system. So it definitely needs a very stable external environment. If you look at the election results, a TPP or KMT, the two opposition party win, would probably bring temporary de-escalation in cross-strait uh, tensions. And potentially there will be more trade deals with Beijing, um, just like what happened during the previous KMT president, Ma Yingzhou's time. However, if we are looking at another DPP win, from this current ruling party. Although the candidate Lai Qingde, he actually called himself a pragmatic worker for Taiwan's independence. But we can actually see from his relatively low profile visit earlier this year in August to the US, that he actually has no intention of doing anything that will actually infuriate Beijing and actually leads to further escalation of tensions. And Lai has been constantly involved in top level decision-making under the current administration. So if he emerged as a president, that would definitely mean policy continuity. But this would also mean that Beijing will likely continue their current strategy in the uh, Taiwan Strait, which is military intimidation and uh, economic coercion. Um, but zooming out a little bit more in the longer term, I think after so many rounds of presidential election in Taiwan, the people in Beijing, they clearly see that democracy is popular with Taiwan's people and reunification is not really what most um, people in Taiwan wanted. So no matter you know, who emerged as the president, Beijing is likely to continue their efforts towards reunification unitarily. And investors will see that too. So I think investors will continue to avoid making long-term investment in Taiwan because of the risk of a war. And uh, Taiwanese firms will also likely see, um, they will try to seek lower risk destinations too. So probably more investment in Southeast Asia. So clearly still a lot of uncertainty ahead. But what I liked at the beginning of your answer was that you broadly said that we should not expect a major escalation of the conflict or especially an escalation into a military conflict, which if you're listening to this before Christmas, might be the kind of positive news that takes you across the festive period. But of course, a lot of nuance there that you've provided for us, Jayu. Thank you very much. I really appreciate this conversation and I hope to have you back soon. Thank you. Thank you. Last month, we talked about Brazil taking over the G20. So this month, it is the turn of the G7. Because on the 1st of January, Italy is taking over the presidency of the group, which represents the seven largest Western economies. To discuss how Italy is going to approach its presidency, I have Giulia Pasquale with me, a senior associate here at GC. Hi, Giulia. Hi, Isabel. So, Julia, first off, I'd love to understand a little bit more about the context of Italy's G7 presidency and why does it matter for them to have this presidency at this time? 
Sure, uh, that's a very interesting question. Uh, and indeed, Italy's presidency um, takes place at a very interesting time. Um, it follows Japan's presidency of the G7 in 2023. And to some extent, it will aim to ensure that there is a certain degree of continuity with Japan, um, given to the difficult underlying conditions uh, that are shaped by geopolitical change and uncertainty. Um, but Italy will also give its own twist to the summit aiming to establish a link between the G7 and the G20, which you've just mentioned. And crucially, the summit will take place in June 2024, shortly after the European Parliament elections. This means that um, it will be an interesting juncture as the results of the parliamentary elections in Europe could shape Italy as well as the EU's priorities within the G7. But also it could leave some more wiggle room to not just Italy, but other G7 countries that are also part of the EU, such as France and Germany, um, more wiggle room to set their own priorities within the G7 uh, because the new commission will have not been formed yet. Um, and indeed, Italy will have an opportunity to also reinforce its international profile. This will indeed be a time for Meloni's government to showcase its commitment to align with other Western democracies. Um, Italy has just uh, withdrew from the Belt and Road Initiative with China, um, which is almost almost as a way of signaling its preparation um, to the to the G7 uh, summit next year. So I'm hearing continuity, but essentially with an Italian twist. I'm hearing it's going to be interesting timing because it's going to be just after the European parliamentary elections. And of course, like we have seen with India, it is a fantastic opportunity to use these presidencies to build a bigger profile, both for the country as well as for the leader. So it's going to be interesting how Meloni and Italy take advantage of that. And I guess while we're on the comparison with the G20, what has been interesting to see both with Brazil going forward and India looking backward, they both really use their presidencies to touch on a kind of global south promotion lens, which they really used for, for their presidency. Is there a specific lens that Italy is looking at its G20, at its G7 presidency through? There is. And indeed, the, the lens through which Italy is going into the, its G7 presidency is uh, a focus on the global south as well. And so it is clear how the Italian government is trying to link the priorities of the G20 and the renewed focus on the global south with the priorities of the G7. And if we look at what Italy has been doing um, in its own diplomacy and, and foreign policy so far, it's, it's really clear that this will be the focus um, going forward. Um, and the lens through which we can understand Italy's G7 priority is what is the so-called uh, Mattei Plan. So the Mattei Plan is an initiative um, announced by the Italian government this year, sorry, in 2023, um, aimed to encourage a holistic approach to dealing with African countries that are pertinent to Italy's strategic priorities. And so in practice, it outlines a series of thematic and geographical priorities, and it is based on Rome's awareness of Italy's geopolitical position at the center of the Mediterranean, as well as of the ever-growing centrality of the African continent, not just for Italy, but also for global phenomena, which are indeed relevant to discussions within the G7, um, for example, security, climate change, migration, and so on. So some of the topics prioritized by Italy under the Mattei plan will be taken to the G7. And we can go into the details in a moment, but what is definitely clear is that the Italian G7 presidency will be defined by 
a focus on the global south, as I said, with climate, energy, and agriculture as crucial issues, all of which have come to the fore in uh, this Mate plan that I've been discussing. It's quite interesting to see that we really have that clear through line then between the Indian and Brazilian G20 presidencies and the Italian presidency of the G7 with this focus on the global south, which really is a term I hadn't really used that much before we hit uh, 2023. And I think now it has gained in such prominence that we can see how much perspectives have shifted. And especially um, the focus on Africa is obviously something that African leaders have demanded for a long time. So it'd be interesting to see how um, Italy tackles this topic um, through its Matei plan. And maybe getting a bit more um, more specific, what do you think Italy's policy priorities are going into that presidency? So through the lens of the Matei plan, there are two key priority areas that I'd like to discuss. And then there is a third priority area that is a bit detached from, from this focus on, 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 um, on the African country specifically, it's a bit more general that I'd like to focus on. So starting from the two that are linked um, to the Matei plan and, and the African continent. The first one is energy. So the, the plan has been named after Enrico Mattei, who is the founder of Italy's state energy company, Eni. So it is clear that cooperation with African countries will have a strong focus on, on energy. And Italy has already been doing a lot of in, in this space by signing, for example, an increasing number of bilateral energy partnerships, such as with Algeria and Libya. And Rome's strategy is really to build new natural gas infrastructure, which can later be converted to hydrogen and would therefore help Italy build Israel and as an energy hub in the Mediterranean. In other words, through the construction of new pipelines, the Italian government is hoping to become an exporter of both natural gas and hydrogen to countries such as Germany and Austria, as well as the gateway linking North Africa to, cent to Central and Northern European countries. And at the G7, what we can expect is that Italy will be leading conversations around energy security and cooperation with African countries. And in line with his own Matei plan, the focus will really be on how to go beyond sectoral and narrow partnerships and to foster a really holistic approach and a long-term um, growth and prosperity approach. The second priority area of the Italian G7 presidency will be climate policy. We've just wrapped up COP28, where Prime Minister Giorgio Meloni reiterated um, that Italy's G7 presidency will indeed aim to build on the announcements made in the UAE. At COP28, Italy pledged 100 million euros to the Loss and Damage Fund, which is um, dedicated to support particularly vulnerable developing countries to address loss and damage arising from climate change. This is one of the highest contributions that have been made to the fund during COP. While the concrete uh, priorities of the presidency within the broader sphere of climate policy have not yet been announced. Um, some references have been made to the area of risk management and insurance connected with climate change. But also what we can expect is a focus on climate change in relation to agriculture. Agriculture as and, and food security more broadly is a key area for, for Italy. Uh, and here again, it links to, to the objectives of the Matei plan, uh, where a lot of attention and efforts are directed to, to the agricultural sector. And thirdly, a key priority for um, Italy at the G7 in 2024 will be artificial intelligence. This is what I mentioned at the beginning as being slightly detached from the 
um, priorities in the Mate plan. Artificial intelligence is quite a is a relatively new theme um, that is being discussed at the G7. Uh, Japan made important progress um, uh, on this topic, and Italy has pledged to bring discussions forward on AI. It also pledged to organize uh, the next AI summit following the one that um, took place in the UK in 2023. And so Italy's willingness to make AI a priority of the Italy-led G7 will test the country's attitude and ability not just to effectively contribute to discussions, but also to come up with concrete solutions uh, to some of the challenges of AI governance. So quite a busy agenda from Italy with three priorities. Energy, which they hope will help boost Italy as an energy hub in the Mediterranean. Climate, building on COP28 with a focus on risk management, insurance and um, agriculture. And quite interestingly, yeah, I agree, quite a new topic or reasonably new topic at the G7 AI, which also for Italy is then in line with them stepping into uh following in the footsteps of the UK and hosting the next AI summit next year as well. I quickly want to finish this by kind of a short assessment of yours of where you think Italy has a good chance of being successful in a, in achieving good progress on any of these priorities and maybe equally importantly, in which areas they are in which they might face challenges. In terms of where Italy is likely to be successful, I really think that energy is the key word here. And we've discussed this at at length already, but if we go back to what we were saying before in relation to energy security and innovation, I think that Italy has made important steps already uh, in in the space, but stipulating agreements with countries like Algeria and Libya, and it's really trying to to become a leader in Europe in in this area. Um, And then moving on to where I think uh, challenges will 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 arise is an area that ha- we haven't discussed um, yet today, and that is that is the area of economic security. Economic security was a really big topic in uh, in 2023 under the, Japan- the Japanese presidency of the G7. Uh, it will continue to be an important topic. And as I said at the beginning of our discussion, Italy will try to ensure a degree of continuity with the approach to economic security and economic coercion that has been discussed uh, under the Japanese presidency of the G7 in 2023. This topic, however, will bear less weight than it had under Japan. I think the topics that we've discussed, um, not just energy, but climate, uh, agriculture and so on, and AI, Will will have more prominence under the under the Italian G7 presidency, um, and this is because of mainly because of two two reasons. First, even though Italy has left the Chinese-led Belt and Road Initiative, its commercial relationship with China remains strong, which makes it less likely for Italy to be leading the G7 to adopt a stronger language on how to address uh, China and how to deal risk from China. And the second reason is that, as I said, we will be in a transition period in Europe when a new political cycle will have just started, but also in the US's presidential elections will be hinging closer. And so it will be more difficult to find a common ground on some of the trickier issues under the economic security agenda, such as outbound investment screening, where the last summit also failed to agree on a common approach. What it is going to be interesting to watch, however, is to what extent Italy will manage to agree on clear language about what economic security entails and what it does not entail, as well as on what economic coercion is and what it isn't. 
All right. So that sounds like a better chance of progress on energy, energy agreements, energy innovation, but maybe a more challenging time on further progress on questions of economic security and especially thorny questions such as agreeing language on issues like outbound investment screening. Well, we're going to see how Italy manages it all. It's not going to be an easy, uh, easy task. So thanks very much, Julia, for talking us through it. Thanks, Isabel. And on this note, we are at the end of this month's episode of the Global Month Ahead. And we're clearly looking at a very interesting January. We're going to see if as many people as ever descend into Davos, who succeeds in Taiwan's presidential election, and how Italy takes on the mantle of the G7. As always, if you, your business, or your investment are exposed to any of what we have discussed today, please don't hesitate to get in touch. You can find the contact details of our presenters and our sectoral teams on the G website, on the GC website at www.global-council.com or via the link in the podcast notes. So thank you, Alexander, Jayu and Julia, and thanks to you for listening.